Welcome back to another episode of the Air Power Hour. Tech Sergeant Check here, and today's episode I was joined by my office partner, Tech Sergeant Jason Keith. He is also an operations NCO here at the 347th Recruiting Squadron, and it was just a joy to have him on the podcast to tell his story. Sergeant Keith has been in the Air Force for over 17 years, and he started his career as an ammunitions troop in Davis Motham Air Force Base, Tucson, Arizona. Sergeant Keith has traveled all over the world to include time in South Korea. In this episode, he shares that leaving his hometown in the great state of Alabama to join the Air Force was one of the best choices that he's ever made. I appreciated having Sergeant Keith on, and I am extremely grateful that I get to spend every day working with this guy. He is an excellent human being and an even better friend. So, without further ado, Tech Sergeant Jason Keith. To all units, proceed to your post assignment. All units, proceed to your post assignment. Welcome to the Air Power Hour. All right, welcome back to the Air Power Hour. My name is Tech Sergeant Check. I'm the host, and today I am joined. Actually, I'm I'm joined by a very special guest. Uh, I know this person very very well. He actually sits approximately five feet away from me. I am joined by Tech Sergeant Jason Keith, my office partner here in operations at the 347th Recruiting Squadron. Sergeant Keith. Welcome to the show. Wow, glad to be here. So, I mean, we're, we're joined every day, so. Yeah, that's true. I guess I'm not joined with you. You're, you're always here. So. Joined, joined by me? Joined, we had this conversation earlier. Joined by. Joined with, joined by, you know. Yeah. Tomato, tomato. When in Rome. So, it's good to have you on here, the Air Power. I know you've been sitting there in this office and you've seen all the guests come in. And, and we actually did kind of a practice run with, you were the first person that I had on the air power just was never published. Yeah. So uh, we came to find out later, you know, what, with the, the trial and error that came through, uh, I was sitting way too far away from the mic. So yeah. I'm sitting a little closer this time. Yeah. Much better. You sound great. Thanks. Yeah. So what we're going to do, uh, just like we do with everybody that comes on the air power, we're here to hear Sergeant Keith's story. So without further ado, let's get into this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm ready for it. I'm ready. So what made you... Jason Keith decide to join the Air Force. So, uh, I guess you have to go all the way to the beginning, uh, 2005. Well, that was the year. So, two years before that, uh, 2003, I graduated from high school, uh, 18 years old. So, I knew everything at the time. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, you know what? It's just time for me to get out of high school because I hated high school. You know, it was just, it was monotonous. It was the same, you know, do your homework, do these tests, things like that. And I was just, like every high school senior, I was ready to be done. Yeah. I was ready to get out on my own. So I got a job. Uh, I was doing landscaping. I was working with my uh, my friend's dad. He got me the job out there. And I'm originally from Alabama. So if you've done any kind of landscaping or anything in the South, you know that after a while, you know, you come home covered in sweat, covered in grass, covered in, you know, dirt and everything else. So yeah. I was I was kind of ready for a change. Um, and at the time, my sister was married to a captain in the Air Force. Oh, nice. Um, and so we were just sitting down having a casual conversation one day. And, you know, I kind of came to the conclusion, why don't I just go speak to a recruiter, see what, uh, see what they say? Yeah. So I called up the recruiter and we spoke for a little bit. And I was like, all right, you know what? This is kind of the, you know, the direction I want to go. Because, you know, I saw my brother-in-law at the time. Mm-hmm. And... 
I saw the lifestyle that he lived and I saw, you know, we talked about you know, all kinds of things like the different aspects, like the benefits and things like that and just how comfortable his life is. And I was like, I kind of want that for myself. Yeah. So I sat down with the recruiter. Um, we talked for a little bit and I kind of knew this is what I wanted to do. Like he didn't have to try to, you know, sell me on anything. It was just, you know, Hey, let's do it. And I was mm-hmm. like, even if it's just for four years, and yeah. I was like, we'll, we'll do that. We'll start the life off and then we'll just see where it goes after that. So I went down, I, uh, processed at MEPS back then, 2005. It was a little bit different than how things are done today, but I processed and then they were like, they, they were trying to get me to do a job at MEPS and I was kind of like, ah, let's just wait and see. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went back to work for about a week, just miserable again. So I was like, man, yeah. I got this, this Air Force thing's in my back pocket. So the next week I actually had a, uh, I had a depth call that I had to attend and my recruiter sat down with me and he said, Hey. When are you trying to leave? I was like, I really don't care. It's the middle of summer. It's it's up to you. It, it doesn't matter. He's like, well, he's like, I have jobs that leave two weeks from now or I have a job that leaves two months from now. I was like, well, what's the job that leaves two months from now? And he was like, he was like, well, it's not really a job. It's more of what we call an aptitude area. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, what else that, what does that mean? He's like, you select your job at basic training. He's like, you scored very high mechanically. So he was like, I would love to put you in some mechanical job. And I've always been fascinated with mechanics and stuff like that, taking things apart. Yeah. Um, not always being able to put them back together, but um, <laughs> I love taking things apart and just seeing how things work. So yeah, that's, that's sure. kind of how my brain works. So I was like, sure, why not? Let's let's do it. So uh, two weeks later, hopped on the bus, went down to the Montgomery Meps, swore in again, and then I was on my flight to San Antonio. Wow. And then I got there, and I still wasn't sure what I was going to be doing. So I went to a building called classifications and I sat down with a uh, career advisor and she sits down and she hands me, you know, four sheets of paper. And on each sheet of paper at the time, there was four different jobs. There hmm. was, you know, work on an aircraft. There was just a variety of jobs. And so one of the jobs that I saw, it was talking about dealing with explosives. And, you know, 20 year old me at the time was like, oh, this looks, seems pretty awesome. Yeah. I was like, I've never my extent of explosives was, you know, playing with fireworks in the backyard and stuff like that on the 4th of July. Yeah. That was about it. So I was like, this seems pretty cool. Didn't really think a lot at the time. Like, uh, what is the, what's the after effect? Like what, what kind of careers can I gain from this after? You know, mm-hmm. that wasn't really what was going through my mind. It was 20 year old me. It was like, Hey, this job's pretty cool. Let's yeah. do this because you know, I'm here for four years and it's an adventure. So now I know that there's a lot of people that, don't quite understand how the aptitude index works. Um, and a lot of people can be actually applicants or people that are interested in the Air Force can be turned off by the idea of not having a guaranteed job. Right. Did, can you explain that process a little bit or, or kind of shed some of that, that worry for, for an individual who may be presented with an option of an aptitude index? Absolutely. Uh, so when applicants take the ASVAB, uh, the ASVAB is scored into four main areas. You've got mechanical, administrative, general, and electrical. Uh, each requires its own base score to qualify for that aptitude area. And then once you, you know, say your recruiter books an aptitude area for you, the only types of jobs that you will select at basic training will fall under one of those four categories. Okay. So if you are super big in the computers and, you know, electrical stuff is your thing, you might say, if I scored high enough for an electrical aptitude area, then I would have selected that because, you know, I could do computers, I could do aircraft electronics, 
I mean, everything nowadays, your car is run by a computer, your aircraft, everything's run by electronics. So if all I want to do is those uh, types of jobs, then that's what I'm going to select is an electrical aptitude area. And a lot of the the fear and worry, you know, that sheds from, you know, generations back because the general aptitude area covers such a wide array of jobs that a lot of times people have this fear, oh, if I select a general aptitude area, I'm either going to be, you know, work services where they, you know, cook and things like that and they work at the basketball courts, things like that, or I'm going to be security forces. That's just not the case anymore. Anytime that we book a security forces or a services job, that's done at the squadron level. That's done locally. We're not going to book you that at basic training. So a lot of times they're going to take into consider like any kind of like prior service jobs that you had. Um, They're going to take that into account. Any certifications that you have, uh, especially like when it comes to like the medical career fields. Mm -hmm. So if you worked in a pharmacy and you were a pharmacy technician or something like that, they're going to take that into account. So just bring in your certifications and things like that and show them like, hey, I'm more equipped to do this job than anybody else. So sure. let me have that job. And now if you're sitting here wondering, wow, Sergeant Keith is very knowledgeable on this whole job booking process. Number one, he went through it uh, firsthand. Uh, he went through the aptitude index process like he just explained. But also at the same time, he is one of our operations non-commissioned officers here at the recruiting squadron. With that being said, you know, we deal with a lot of the job bookings and uh, reservations for applicants for jobs. Sergeant Keith, what else do we do here in the operations world? So, yeah, in the operations world, uh, a lot of times there will be people, they'll come in what we like to call baggage. Uh, So essentially, say somebody got into trouble with the law before they wanted to join the Air Force. And at the time, they didn't really know they wanted to join the Air Force. They were just, you know... They were being themselves. They might have done something a little, you know, something. Made a mistake. Exactly. Yeah. Make a mistake. We all make them. Of course. Um, so say that happens and it's something that the Air Force is willing to to waive. We are the ones that process those waivers. So may it be for financial issues. Uh, maybe it's for some sort of, uh, I don't know, law violations, things mm-hmm. like that. Um, just, just any number of things. You kind of have to talk to your recruiter about, you know, what qualifies me, what disqualifies me because. If you have one of these conditions, uh, technically you're disqualified, but there are things your recruiter can do to help you become qualified. Yeah. So that's what we deal with here. Uh, essentially, we are the we're the middleman when it comes to this kind of stuff because most of your waivers are going to get signed by the commander. So what we do is we kind of protect the commander. We look out yeah. for her. We make sure you know everything's on the up and up, like all the paperwork is correct, and you know we we dot the i's and cross the t's to make sure that she's not just signing you know, whatever yeah, it may be for sure. And then later down the road, something comes back from it and, you know, kind of bites her. Yeah. Operations is very, it is, it is a, a desk job. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it's not as monotonous as people would think. You know, I think that we, it's something different every day. It's a different waiver, different jobs that we're giving out, different processes that we're dealing with. So when people hear desk jobs, they're like, Oh, you know, I don't want to do the same thing every day, but I don't think it's like that. I think no. we it's broken up. No, no, absolutely. Uh, so every day, I mean, we come in here and we have a system that we use and we open these buckets up and it's always something different. And there's always, uh, especially in recruiting, you're going to see it, that little thing that throws you off, that kind of like yeah. one gray area where you're like, man, does it fall under this area or does it fall under this area? And you have to kind of 
you know, we utilize each other's skills within the ops section to say, you know, what kind of call would you make and why would you make that call? What should I do here? Or what do you think is the best course of action for this? Yeah. So we're presented with like several different challenges every day. And, uh, you know, be it from the production superintendent or from the commander or from, you know, even our ops chief and things like that, because there's a lot of moving parts within a squadron and you have mm-hmm. people constantly coming in and out that are not, you know, everything in the military has, you know, a rank and file and it has, you know, a system and a process that it needs to go through. And when a new cog or wheel gets placed into that process, it can kind of throw things off and slow things down. Yeah. So we're kind of here to face that challenge and remove those barriers for recruiters in order to, you know, keep the process flowing. Yep. I always tell recruiters, new recruiters, when they're coming in and they're doing all their in-processing, I say, ops is here to help you. We are not here to slow you down. Like we are here to get your applicants to basic training. So we're here to help you in any way, shape or form. Uh, Again, we're not here to slow the process down. And I think we do a good job and we have fun while we're doing it. That's true. And I mean, seeing it from this side, you know, as a recruiter, you submit that waiver or you submit that, you know, whatever the case may be, uh, and you get sent back for something that you think is so trivial Mm -hmm. and you're banging your head against the wall and you're like, oh my gosh, would they just, you know, why don't they just fix it or why don't they correct it? Uh, it's not that we don't want to, it's just that we've got, you know, maybe 50 other things that we've got to correct. Exactly. Um, and so like with me, the approach that I like to take is when something is, you know, if it's something super, super minor, I'm not going to kick it back to you. I'm going to ask you, Hey, either fix this and then send it to me, or I can kick it back to you and you can just shoot it right back up real quick. So I, I feel their pain because I've been on both sides of it now and I see so for any recruiters that are listening, just know that operations is not here to hinder you in any way. No, absolutely not. So let's backtrack now because we started talking about your career and you leave for basic training Yep. under the mechanical aptitude index and you pick your job. You pick the explosives job, mm-hmm. which is cool. Now, is this the first time that you had left Alabama for an extended period of time? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I was, I mean, pretty much a homebody. Just, yeah. uh, we've gone on vacations, you know, everybody in the Southeast, you're either going to go to, you know, Gulf Shores or you're going to go to, uh, Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And that's, yeah. that's the extent of most of your travel. So it was definitely my, it was my first time away from home for a very long time. So I got to San Antonio and I did my, back then, I believe it was six and a half weeks. Mm-hmm. I did my six and a half weeks of basic training, which is, you know, it was in the middle of July. I will admit it was hot. it was hot and you're marching everywhere and that pavement gets really hot on your feet. Mm-hmm. So, But I got it done with and then I went to tech school. My tech school was in Wichita Falls, Texas at Shepard Air Force Base. Okay. Uh, tech school is essentially, it's, it's the basics of your job. It's learning how to function along with the, you know, the unit you're going to. It's just how to, you know, it's the basics. Yeah. I don't know, I don't know what. Uh, yeah. Teaching you how to do your job. Yeah. Um, to a certain extent. Right. You're not going to be a, a pro when you leave there because the Air Force is so broad, uh, especially in the munitions career field, because we don't support like one specific type of aircraft. We support fixed wing aircraft, helicopters, cargo aircraft. They all in some way, form or shape, they use explosives, whether people know it or not. Yeah. From the ejection seat that shoots a pilot out of the aircraft to uh, maybe like a fire extinguisher bottle. So say an engine catches on fire on a cargo airplane, 
They can push a little button, a little squib goes off, and it lets the fire extinguisher do its job. Wow. So, and then uh, also the, the flares that come out that people see in the photos and stuff, those all go in cargo aircraft as well. Yeah, yeah. So what was your thought process about when you joined the Air Force and you knew that you were leaving Alabama, you're a homebody, and you, you leave Alabama for, I mean, essentially it could have been four years. What was your thought process as a, as a kid getting ready to embark on this journey? Um, I mean, a lot of emotions run through somebody, especially as you lead up to that time closer and closer to leaving. Um, I had friends, I had family, um, I had, you know, all these people that I knew that, you know, I was sad that I was leaving. Yeah. But at the same time, I was like, I know I need to do this for myself. Yeah. Because if I don't, you know, I'm just going to be stuck here in the same little, you know, one red light town with not a whole lot going on, still working either, you know, landscaping or construction, some type mm-hmm. of manual labor job that doesn't really have any kind of room for advancement or anything like that. So I was sad, but at the same time, I was kind of happy for myself. And then, uh, you know, that first night or two at basic training, you kind of start questioning that, yeah. uh, that decision. You're like, oh man, what did I get myself into? And then gradually, you know, cause there's a group of you, there's about 60 of us in there. And so you all start working together, you start making new friends and you start making these new connections and stuff. And it, it gets a lot easier. Yeah. And then you become, uh, you know, you become an airman. And so now you're a part of not only just a basic training flight, but an entire United States Air Force. So yeah, it's a pretty good feeling. Um, it is. Uh, you have that, you get your airman's coin. Uh, back then, it was uh, at a different time than they have it now. It was called Beast Week, I believe. Yep. I remember Beast Week. So we did that. And then uh, they handed out the coins there. And so, I mean, a lot of people think, oh, you know, six and a half weeks isn't that long, you know, and it's not that tough. It's not like the other branches where they're like, oh, you know, 13 weeks or however long their basic trainings are. And it's not as, it doesn't seem as physically demanding. But one of the big things that it gets pushed into you at basic training is essentially it's attention to detail. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a reason why you're clipping the strings off your uniforms for so many hours a day. You're doing all these drills and all this marching and everything like that. And I didn't get it until later. You know, a lot of times, like I was like, oh, attention to detail. And one of my MTIs, he walked up to me and I got an an infraction for something, something that I did was wrong. And, uh, you know, he was like, he's like, what if, you know, your attention to detail leads to somebody dying? And I never thought about it that way. Mm -hmm. And so he was like, uh, my MTI was an F-16 crew chief at the time before he became an MTI. And he said, you know, if I have a bad day and he's like, I'm out there and I don't torque a certain nut down or I don't do something right or I leave my screwdriver somewhere. Uh, Someone else's husband, brother, you know, whatever the case may be, wife, sister, aunt, whoever it may be, is going to get into that airplane and they're going to fly it. And if it crashes, it's my fault because I didn't have attention to detail. Yeah. And so that's one of the things that not a lot of people take out of basic training, but that was one thing that was pushed into me very hard. Mm -hmm. And so... I don't even remember what question we were on or what we were discussing. So I was, I was no. just kind of ranting. No, you're good. And now MTI, that stands for military training instructor. That's just for correct. everybody. So yeah. those are the guys with the, the hats and they're running around yelling at people. The way I see it, though, if branches have longer basic training, basic training is not meant to make you suffer. You know, yeah. people, some people think, uh oh, you know, the Air Force is only doing it for six and a half weeks and, you know, other branches are doing it for longer. There's a purpose, a very clear purpose to basic training that is to break you down mm-hmm. and to build you back up as an airman. 
with attention to detail, integrity, and excellence, just like our core values. And with that being said, we're just more efficient than the other branches because we can get it done in six and a half weeks. We can put some amazing products, some wonderful, excellent individuals into the Air Force in six and a half weeks. We're just more efficient, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you're done with basic training. You're done with tech school. Where does Sergeant Keith or Airman Keith at that time, where does Airman Keith go after tech school? So because, you know, the homesickness and things like that, and you're, you're, you're building this dream list of like, okay, these are all the places that I want to go. You know, this is where I want to be. So I put every single base down in the southeast that I could. Mm-hmm. Eglin Air Force Base, Tyndall Air Force Base, Herbert Field. Uh, These are all in Florida. They're all in Florida. There's a few in Georgia. Uh, so just places around there. So I could be close to home. Sure. And still, you know, because, I mean, who doesn't want to live in Florida? Yeah. Right? So I put all that stuff down, and you, you fill out this sheet, and it basically says, you know, these are the places I would like to go. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the needs of the Air Force come first. Mm-hmm. So while at tech school, I walked down, and I spoke with the, uh, the assignment counselor, and she said, um, congratulations, you're going to Davis Monthan Air Force Base. And I was like, where is that? Yeah. I was like, I, you hear of the popular ones, but you don't ever hear about these other ones. And so I had to go up. I went on the computer. I started looking. I was like, Tucson, Arizona. Ooh. I was like, I was like, I have never lived, you know, west of the Mississippi. Sure. Um, never even really visited west of the Mississippi. So I was like, here it goes. It's more part of the adventure. Here we go. That's right. Kind of to backtrack just a, a, a touch. Um, so when I selected my aptitude area, I actually was told about uh, an opportunity to sign up for six years. Mm. So I was like, hmm. And so they told me some of the pros and the cons of it. Uh, so I decided, you know what? Six years sounds better than four. Yeah. Uh, because you automatically, you jump from E1 to E3 once you graduate from tech school. My tech school was eight weeks long, so two months. So after two months, I went from an E1 to an E3. And that pay scale or that pay jump is it's quite significant. So yeah. I decided to do six years. So this is the, you know, six-year adventure. Yeah, so that's I'm, right. I'm already halfway through my first year uh, just by basic training and tech school. Alone. Sure. And I'm getting paid for all this stuff. I don't have to pay for anything. And it's kind of nice. They supplied okay. everything. So I got to, uh, <clears throat> I finally took some time and I went to, uh, I made it to Tucson. Uh, young Airman Keith at the time. Yeah. Uh, Airman first class Keith. I had my, uh, had my two little ribbons. There you my, go. My two stripes. I was, I was feeling pretty good. Yeah. So I got there and just started my job, went out there, started just doing the best that I could to figure out, you know, and learn and things like that. Uh, at that base, they have A-10s, uh, commonly referred to as the, uh, the Warthog. Yes. So I was put on a crew where mostly all we did was uh, 30 millimeter. So. These big, you know, it's a it's a cartridge that comes out about the size of a Coke can. Okay. Uh, and that's what we use to shoot at bad guys and stuff. So, oh, so it's like a bullet. Giant bullet. Giant bullet. Wow. Yeah. Size of a Coke can? Yeah. Holy cow. And so, uh, well, I'd say Coke can, a Red Bull can. And how how many of these were you putting in the air? So uh, each aircraft holds uh, 1,150 of them. Oh, Wow. So, yeah. We had uh, we had two training squadrons, and then we had one actual, what we call a fighter squadron, uh, that they deployed on rotations. Okay. So, so they go through a lot of this stuff, especially when they're training. Yeah. Um, and there's different types, different varieties that do different things. 
Some are just target practice rounds. Some will explode on impact. Some will penetrate. So trying to keep up with all these different types, uh, you have different squadrons. It can, it can be overwhelming sometimes, but you know, young Airman Keith really didn't have to worry about that. I was, I was more of the doing the grunt work out there, Yeah, but I was, I was learning sure. along the way. I had some really great NCOs that showed me, uh, they not only taught me how to, okay, you put the can over here and you do this, you're going to, this is how we do it and why we do it. So there was a lot of explanation as to why, and that's what made me a better airman and a better, as we call ammo troop. Yeah. That's good to have. That's good to have the, uh, the showing of, of how to do things instead of just telling. Yeah. Um, I definitely appreciated that from a leadership standpoint, mm-hmm. uh, to be able to show you how to do things. So that's awesome. So you're Tucson, Arizona. How long were you in Tucson? So I was in Tucson for about a year and a half. Okay. Um, and what happened then? So I got, I got orders, uh, during my time there, uh, I absolutely loved Tucson. I loved the surrounding area and things like that. Uh, but I had a lot of friends that were leaving ahead of me Yeah. That, uh, they're like, oh, we're all going to go to Korea. I was like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, so I went in there and I changed my dream sheet. Boom, Korea. It's a, it's a volunteer assignment. Uh, it's only a year long. And so I was like, hey, I've made these friends. I've made friends that are, you know, they're leaving and I've made friends here. But again, it's a part of that adventure, a part of that journey that you're on. Yeah. Like, why not? I've never left the country. So let's, let's go to one that, you know, I can't understand anybody that's there. Uh, I just know that a lot of people are going, and that seems to be the place to be. So you went to Korea. I was in South Korea. I was at uh, Osan Air Base. I was there for a year, uh, exactly a year. The day that I left was the same day that I got there. Wow. February 7th. And that that had to have been fun. I mean, being a kid from Alabama, now you're in South Korea, totally different culture. No, yeah, being, being 21 years old, just getting to South Korea, getting to travel and do things that I would say a huge portion of the United States Americans in total would never, ever do in their lives. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I went whitewater rafting. I, I went to the demilitarized zone. So I got to see, you know, where the border of North and South Korea is at Yeah, and hear all the stories and take tours and see all the, you know, things that was, it's really eye opening to yeah. get to see, you know, on the other side of the border, there is a, uh, it's a propaganda village essentially. Mm-hmm. And all they do is it's just, it's a fake village that's set up there to make it look like everything is all, you know, perfect and great yeah. and there's nothing wrong with North Korea. You know, we're doing, we're doing awesome over here. Yeah. When in reality, we know what goes on over there, but. And the town is totally empty. It's just like a fake town. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They may turn the lights on. Yeah. They may turn them on. Jeez. That's crazy. So you, you do a year in Korea and then. Uh, I'm assuming this is when you go back, you PCS or you move mm-hmm. uh, to Florida. Yep. So, uh, so I did my time there. And while I was there, um, again, you're working with assignment counselors and things like that. And yeah. they say, okay, where do you want your follow on assignment to be? And I'm like, all right, well, I've lived in the, you know, the Southwest. I traveled while I was in the Southwest as well, you know, in Tucson and stuff like that. I got to go to Las Vegas, Colorado, yeah. surrounding areas, things like that. And then, and then in Korea, I traveled while I was there. I uh, went to Japan, and then I also got to take a trip to Alaska while I was there. Wow. So all paid for, uh, you know, yeah. the Air Force paid for all of that stuff. Yeah, um, that's awesome. So uh, I left there, and then I went to, uh, I was like, hey, now it's time to kind of move back to the southeast. I was like, I'm really kind of missing my family right now. Mm-hmm. I want to I live far enough away to where I can just, you know, weekend, like, hey, let me just drive up. Yeah. But I'm also far enough away to where if they want to come visit me, it's like, hey, we got to make some plans and you guys got to call. Sure. 
Yeah. Um, that's clutch. So I moved down there and then I was there for nine years. Wow. So nine years in one spot. Nine years. Um, it can be a good and a bad thing. Uh, yeah. I enjoyed my time. It's Florida. Who doesn't want to live in Florida? You know, yeah. right next to the water. Um, all of the tourist attractions and things you get to do while mm-hmm. in Florida. Um, after a while, it gets old. But at the same time, uh, from an Air Force career standpoint, uh, they look at it kind of negatively. They want you to move around and they want you to get breadth of experience. So yeah. they want to see you, you know, going to these different types of commands and learning different things. So sure. you can be a more well-rounded uh, ammo troop, I yeah. guess, or a well-rounded airman uh, because there's different experiences at different bases because yeah. every base has a different mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got Air Combat Command, which was my first uh, my first command. My second command was uh, uh, PACAF or Pacific Air Forces. And then my third command was uh, AFMC, which is Air Force Material Command. Okay. So they want you to move around and get these different scopes and different levels and views of the Air Force as you continue to climb up that ladder because you become more useful to the air force at that point. Mm-hmm. I love being there and I got a little bit stagnant. I would say I moved around in different sections within my career field there, but I never left. I did deploy out of there a few times, which they gave me a, you know, a little wider scope. And then I got to go what we call TDY or temporary duty several, several times from there. Yeah. Uh, you know, I got to go to Utah. I went back to Colorado again. I went to Las Vegas again and several areas around there and all pay for, you know, again, by the air force, they pay for it. So they pay for my travel, um, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So for, so nine years, you do that for nine years, you're in Florida. Mm -hmm. And then I'm guessing that you became a, a recruiter, correct? I did. I was actually, I was selected to become a recruiter. Uh, so while I was actually on my deployment, I got an email from my supervisor. He was like, hey, right now you're in what is is a DSD cycle or a developmental special duty cycle. Mm -hmm. He was like, I need you to, uh, these are the types of jobs that fall under that criteria. I need you to basically rack and stack them from your most desired job to your least desired job. And I believe I filled it out and uh, there were several jobs. And I think recruiter was either number two or number three on that list. Didn't really know anything about recruiting, was kind of nervous about the whole thing. Yeah. Um, I, at the time, I wasn't really like, uh, I was very, very Air Forcey, you know, not a very big people person. Mm-hmm. But I talked to a few people that had come into recruiting and gone back into their original career fields. Uh, and they said, you know, it's not as bad as it used to be. A, yeah. lot, of, a lot of people had a negative connotation on it way back in the day uh, that it was what was called a career killer. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, like, oh, yeah, if I didn't meet my, you know, my goal or anything like that, I was getting, you know, I was getting an LOC or LOR, things like that. It's it's not like that anymore. Which are different types of oh, yeah. punishments, I guess. Uh, you know. Disciplinary action, yeah. um, you would yeah. say. So I filled out that email. And then shortly after uh, returning, I had been home from that deployment, I would say, for about three months. Uh, I come into work one morning and I just have an email that says, congratulations, you have been selected to a recruiter for the United States Air Force. So I was like, oh, all right, here we go. So, uh, yeah, I was selected. And then there's there's sort of a process that you go through to become a recruiter. You're going to get a, a list down and it shows like, okay, these are all of the places that, you know, are available for recruiters right now. So mm-hmm. I filled it out. And then I got actually, funny enough, I got to recruit out of Alabama. Oh, of course. That's awesome. So uh, Went, know, going back home. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. Um, <laughs> so... So, yeah, so I got to do my recruiting stint in Alabama for, um, gosh, 
It was about, it was three and a half years uh, yeah. because my mine was cut just a, a tad bit short because I decided after my first year, I was like, this recruiting thing is not that bad. You know, I don't, yeah. I don't mind it at all. And I would love to see other, you know, other aspects of it. So I went ahead and was like, you know what, let's stay in recruiting. And that's what got me here. Yeah. So now I'm considered what is a, it's a tier two position uh, within recruiting. So I'm an ops NCO or operations NCO. I should be a little bit clearer. Yeah. Yeah. Operations NCO. So you've obviously had a very fulfilling career up to this point, right? How long have you been in now? So right now, uh, I hit 17 years back in July, so roughly 17 and a half years. 17 and a half years. Well, thank you for your service. Well, thanks for your support, sir. Yeah. And looking back on it, would you say that joining the Air Force was the right decision for you? Or uh, could you see yourself doing anything other than the Air Force? Mm, I honestly don't. And it might sound cliche, but again, if I was back home, I wouldn't be anywhere. Uh, yeah. I don't think me personally, like there's people that can stay in their hometown and become very prosperous and, you know, lead the life that they want to live. I, yeah. just, I don't think I could. So I have a younger sister that's two years younger than I am. And it was time, you know, the parents approached us. We're like, Hey, we can only really afford one education. And I told them, I was like, well, that's wasted on me. Don't. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to, you know, I graduate, I'm not going to school. And if I do go to school, it's not going to be, I'm not going to take it seriously. So yeah. don't waste the money on me. So they were like, okay. And so two years later, my little sister graduates, uh, comes up and it was around the same time that I had decided to join the air force, which she had just shortly graduated and she was making her way down to college. She actually went to the university of Alabama. So, nice. um, she did that for a while. I'm not going to call her out, but yeah, she, you know, she got into a little bit of trouble, lost scholarship money, things like that. And then she attended, uh, the university of Alabama in Birmingham. So go Blazers. Yeah. UAB. So from there, she, uh, she got her criminal justice degree and then she was accepted into law school. And now, you know, I don't know how many years later it is, but she's actually a, uh, she's a lawyer. Wow. Yeah. That is awesome. So, uh, definitely, definitely would have been wasted on me. So, yeah. uh, I feel like this is the place I should be. Um, you know, the military is not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the, one of the hardest things I think as a recruiter is you have so many people that want to do it that they can't. They're disqualified for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. And then you have so many people that are qualified that don't want to do it. And that's kind of like that conflicting thing. You're like, oh, yeah. my gosh, I wish you would just give it a chance, you know. Yeah. Just try it because you never know what's going to happen. And that's why we do this podcast. We're trying to humanize what the military is actually like because a lot of those people that just they're like, oh, it's not for me. I was one of those guys in high school. Like, mm-hmm. I'd see the recruiters. I was like, that is not for me. And I had no idea. I had no idea the opportunities that you could get by joining the military and the Air Force specifically. Mm-hmm. And the general population just they they may not know. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to tell people all the opportunities. I mean, look at you. You've gone to South Korea. You've traveled all over the world on the Air Force's dime, mm-hmm. at the same time, you've learned a skill uh, that can translate. You've, you're going to school for free. Uh, there's just, the opportunities are endless. And people, like you said, you just wish those people like, I just wish I could just share with you what actually happens in the military because it might change their mind. Oh, yeah. And that was another thing. As a recruiter, 
a lot of times we see on like the Air Force website and all the advertising, oh, you know, 150 jobs. Like, yes, there are 150 job types in the Air Force. Mm-hmm. But there are probably, if I had to guess, maybe 10,000 different job titles within the Air Force. Yeah. They do so many different things. Like, like oh, yeah, you know, I'll talk to so many people. And I'm like, hey, so what did you do before XYZ? And they're like, oh, I was a crew chief. I was a load master. I was, you know, any number of jobs. And I'm like, well, how did you get this job? You know, I have no idea. I just uh, uh-huh. I fell into a crack and then I got this job. So yeah. there's people that travel around. Uh, you know, they'll talk about, you know, when there's uh, when the president walks down off of Air Force One and there's a security forces member sitting there greeting the United States, you know, the president of the United States, nobody knows that's an actual job within a job. Yeah. So it's the careers within careers that you can get that are going to set you up for life. I guarantee you when that guy salutes the president coming out of the uh, he knows secret service agents. He knows like all these different people that are surrounding, you know, just that part. And so those are some pretty good six figure salaries. Yeah, you know? for sure. So there's, there's so many different, like I was saying, it's, there's careers and then there's careers within careers. Yeah. So it's just finding out what those opportunities are because I know I could, I never thought I'd be a recruiter. Not once. Yeah. I thought I would stick it out in ammo and I would just go and ride that wave until I hit retirement. And then the opportunity became available. You know, I didn't necessarily volunteer for it, but the Air Force said, this is what we need. And then going mm-hmm. back to the needs of the Air Force, that was come first. Just like I didn't want to get stationed at Davis Monthan. However, the needs of the Air Force came first. I was like, okay, here we go. Hey, we need you to be a recruiter. All right, let's go. Yeah. So that's just kind of where I've been at for the rest, uh, for the past couple of years now. And you grow where you're planted, right? That's right. You know, you, you don't necessarily, that wasn't your first choice, but you chose to be successful and and be great and excellent and follow the core values and now you're rewarded with doing a developmental special duty in recruiting and and now you're here and you get to hang out with me every day exactly can't beat that i mean you see uh you know you see weeds grow up to asphalt so yeah exactly grow where you're planted so before we wrap this up, because I really appreciate you taking the time to tell us your story. You do have an awesome story. I mean, coming from humble beginnings in Alabama and and now sitting in Wisconsin, freezing your butt off, even though you spent nine years in Florida. Um, I'm believe paying, me. I'm paying for it. Yeah, the snow is coming. I know we don't have any right now. The snow is coming. But the last question I want to ask you before we wrap this thing up is if I was a brand new airman that just graduated basic training. And I was sitting down across from Sergeant Keith. What would you say? What kind of advice would you have for that new airman? For the new airman? Uh, I guess my best advice would have to be uh, don't come into the Air Force with any kind of preconceived notion about what the Air Force is. Because I definitely, I didn't even have any idea about, I didn't really have the preconceived notions. A lot of times now, uh, because I didn't grow up really in the computer age. Mm -hmm. There were computers around, but... You know, I didn't do a lot of research. I don't, I didn't have the tools available to me back then that I do, that they have now. Yeah. And so there's all these preconceived notions of, you know, if I come in and I say this or I do this X, Y, Z, I'm going to get X, Y, Z, this, you know, yeah. Read the Air Force website, read X, Y, Z, but don't come in with, you know, these super high expectations of what you read on the internet. Yeah. You kind of have to make it your own Mm -hmm. journey. And there's so many different ways to be successful mm-hmm. or unsuccessful in the military. It's much like a normal career. Yeah. You know, there's not like a, 
you don't sit down and graduate from basics training and open up a book and it says, this is how you become a chief master sergeant. You know, there's so many different ways to get to your goal. Um, yeah. So I, I appreciate that input. I think that's really good. I think that's, that's awesome. And definitely uh, not coming in with this idea of like, oh, I read this on the internet and this is how it's going to go. This is exactly what it's going to be like. Mm-hmm. Um, because then you're just setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. A lot of times what you read on the internet is going to be someone else's experience. Yeah. And just like with everything, you know, times change. Change is the most constant thing in the universe, right? With that said, it's just you're you're reading someone else's experience and then you're expecting your experience to be exactly like theirs and you're disappointed when it's not. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's what my wife tells me never to to read the reviews. Or maybe she tells me to read the reviews. I don't know. On Amazon, I always find the thing with the most reviews mm-hmm. and I buy it. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, a lot of times too, that, yeah, you'll see like, uh, or you'll hear like somebody's like, oh man, that movie was trash. Like, don't go see it. Da, da, da. I'm kind of one of those things. Like now I'm curious, like mm-hmm. now I'm going to go see it and just see how I think, you know, how I feel about it. Yeah. Because I'm going to have a different viewpoint on like, you know, the entire different thing. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, I greatly appreciate having you on, Sergeant Keith. Uh, I'm glad you could come in here and, re- and record an episode with me. Uh, we have these conversations pretty much every single day. We have really good conversation, but it's the opportunity to share your story yeah. with, with the rest of the people. So um, thank you for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, not a problem. Uh, anytime. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was Technical Sergeant Keith, the operations NCO at the 347th Recruiting Squadron. And this is the Air Power Hour. Take care, friends.